0: Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you are here to join us today. And I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Jacob Batsgard from Disruptive Advertising. Jacob, I'm so happy that you're here to join us today. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Jacob, you know your story better than anybody else. So would you share a little bit about your entrepreneurial background and how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, you bet. I, um, you know, after graduating from college, I worked at a company called Omniture that was later by Adobe and helped Fortune 100 companies implement their web analytics so that they could track how their marketing was doing and, and have all the insights that they needed. And uh, in that process, what I found was that very few companies knew how to track their marketing and what was working and what wasn't. And as I was digging through the data time and time again with my clients, I started to see what was working for people and what wasn't, and the common mistakes and things that uh, were successful or, or crazy failures. And I thought, man, if if the big boys don't know how to do this very well, what are the small and medium-sized businesses doing? And that was kind of where I had my aha moment of, okay, I think there's an opportunity here. And then ultimately realizing that being on the uh, – the, the corporate ladder or treadmill or however you want, you want to describe it, just realized that that wasn't for me, and and so that's kind of where I saw my opportunity. Uh, decided to to break off and go for it, and uh, to help companies make sure they had good marketing data so that they could be smart about how they were spending their dollars. And uh, my first client that I worked with, it was uh, this experience. It was the company that I worked at when I was in college. Of course, you kind of reach out to your network and try to get things going that way and you know they had about 25 employees at the same time they provided tech support services and I said hey I'd love to help you guys out and they said yeah well we'd love to grow can you help us do that and we connected all of their marketing data to their sales data internally and uh, were able to figure out what was working what wasn't and what happened was like what got me addicted and in love with what I do Kim and that is uh, they went from about 25 employees to uh, over 350. Wow! They uh, we we went from a couple hundred leads a day to several thousand leads a day, and the return that they were getting on each dollar spent on marketing, we were able to double and then triple and then and and kind of move the needle aggressively in those ways. And it was just so fun to be a part of that. And of course, I I was playing an important part, but I wasn't doing all of it. And uh, going through that experience together is what really just kind of was my moment to say. Man, this is awesome. I'm all in. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And now just kind of building and growing an organization around myself uh, to be able to do that for more companies and, and the clients that we work with. And it's that's gone better than I expected as well. We've kind of gone from myself freelancing out of my basement to uh, we've got a pretty thriving agency with about 120 people here now. And uh, I definitely want to touch
0: upon that. That's just huge going from you to 120 people. I want to go back to what you just said about your client being able to double and then triple their advertising. I used to think that that was so scary. I'm I'm certified with digital marketer and an Infusionsoft certified partner. And mm-hmm. I didn't really understand how that was possible until I understood that when your marketing is doing what it's supposed to do, you're cutting out the people who aren't really interested and you're getting more good leads. So it's You're throwing less money down the toilet. Is that a fair way of putting it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And every dollar spent is going towards more good leads than, well, basically not leads.
1: (laughs) And it's not even necessarily good leads. It's the ones that are actually closing into sales. Because if you can focus every marketing dollar towards channels that are producing sales for you, um, obviously, you're going to get a lot better bang for your buck, and it's going to allow you to grow faster because your dollars are working so much more effectively for you. And, uh, but yeah, that's really what it comes down to.
0: My first business was an e-commerce shop. I wasn't even passionate about what I was selling; it was crafting supplies. <laughs> okay. It was one day that I gave Google AdWords a shot, and I spent $800 in a day by accident. Now, I live in Ohio, and at that point, $800 was more than a month of rent. Oh boy. It hurt a lot.
1: That is not uncommon.
0: I know. Perry Marshall was on the show about a month ago, and he said it's the, I think he calls it the Google stupid tax or something like that, <laughs> just because yeah. people don't know what they're doing. And I have to tell you, Jacob, I haven't gone back since because I've been afraid of it.
1: Yeah, that's the unfortunate reality is that most people have either been burned by trying to do it themselves, working with an agency that... Uh, isn't that much better at doing it. And at the end of the day, they're not actually connecting the eyeball on ads through to an actual cell on the back end. So even if it worked, they wouldn't know it worked. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it absolutely <laughs> makes sense. And then full disclosure, I don't have my Google Analytics set up properly. So
1: Yeah, most, most people don't.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the other common mistakes that you saw with your early clients? And I'm sure some of them are still similar today with new clients that you bring in as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Things actually surprisingly in terms of the approach and mistakes that we see companies making have not changed that much. We've actually developed a software tool that will audit an AdWords account in 30 seconds and give us a huge deliverable on exactly what or is not working in the account. And we've got over 5,000 of those audits in our in our system now. And we've we've actually been able to measure that 76% of the budgets being spent in Google AdWords are wasted.
0: You said 70%?
1: 76%.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And that doesn't mean that the other 24% is profitable. It just means that it at least produced something for them. And and so the the common mistakes that we see people making are, you know, there's a lot of settings and a lot of specific things in the platform that you've got to make sure set up right. I hate it when I see people that are in Texas and advertising in Oklahoma when when they don't intend to, right? Uh, There's a box that if you don't check or uncheck, you might show ads in different countries and not even realize that you're doing that. But the biggest mistake that I see people making Kim is they, is they don't make sure to take the time to make sure that they're tracking a setup. Well first so that when it does or doesn't work, they can actually know that and not just guess. And then everybody Spreads themselves way too thin. No one's starting with a million dollar a month budget, right? And so we have a finite resource that we have to allocate in the most efficient way possible. And so people hop into a platform like AdWords and they think of every possible thing that someone might type into Google that is relevant to them and they start bidding on them. And their ad, they run out of budget after their ad run for 30 minutes or an hour. It's spread across so many keywords that they don't even they don't know if it was the time of day. They don't know what did or didn't work. They just spread it way too thin. And so typically what we've found is that less is more really focus on keeping it simple, bidding on a few, testing it through to, Hey, let's make sure the ad can run all day. Let's see how it performs. Let's uh, see what kind of leads or sales uh, that that drives for us. And, and then kind of stepping through that uh, one chunk at a time rather than hey let's test 100 keywords hey we'll start with five and then see how those perform and then move on to the next five so that you can actually conclusively say if it did or didn't work that's those are the biggest mistakes that I see people making because we jump into an account you have no idea what did or didn't work and they're like yeah yeah we don't know
0: (laughs) which is just so sad I did a split test on one of my own pieces I have a, a planner that is just that is going to be launched hopefully in the next year, but I have a free seven day version PDF of it. And I just decided, I don't know which one of these images I liked. I'm just gonna try them all, you know? So I I split tested four and I was shocked by the one that got the highest results. It was actually the last one that I wanted to put up. (laughs) But if I hadn't split tested, then I wouldn't have known. And it has a a 64% conversion. So I'm like, awesome. well, to two people signing up for the for the free version of the planner. But I, w- I was absolutely shocked. I was like, OK, I guess I'm going with this one.
1: Well, and that's what we have found is that we, we kind of got to let our egos go, because at the end of the day, the data will tell us the story, right, in terms of what works and what doesn't work, not what we've thought should work. And, and that's why it's good to get feedback. You know, when we come up, when we any campaign or that we set up and roll with is taking the time to understand the audience, the pain points, the benefits that we think matter to them, talking to the top salesperson in the organization, getting their perspective on that as well, as well. And then really just systematically going through that. Hey, we came up with 10 ideas. We came up uh, in terms of the pain points that we think will resonate or the benefits that will be most compelling to people. Uh, And then you go through the list of each of those 10 with your messaging and and promotion of that. And you're going to figure out which, which ones matter, which ones resonate the best, and the data will tell the story. And sometimes it's even fun to place bets on those, right? Like, you know, this is a lot oh, of things going like to work. And it's just, it just makes marketing fun. And it, we're learning about an audience. Uh, some, and, that, and that's what's great about digital marketing is when it's done correctly, even a failed test in terms of ROI gets you that much closer to what will produce the ROI in your campaigns next. And so that's why it's important to do it right. And not spread yourself too thin. Hey, let's conclusively make sure we know each of these things. And then when we're done, even if we didn't get the return we were looking for, we're now set up to get it.
0: Yeah. You just inspired me. I have a much smaller team than you. I have seven. But the next time we run an ad, I'm going to have each of my team members, at least the ones who are involved in the project, design their own ad. And we'll split test against each other. I know it's not really the same as betting, you know, on which one's going to go, but everybody has their own perspective and who knows what it's going to do. I mean, my design is so different from anybody else's. How did you go from one person working in your house to having 120? Who was the first person that you hired?
1: The first person I hired was a buddy from high school. And uh, he actually, I believe at the time, was living in Idaho and I was in Utah. And so he'd drive down from time to time and we'd spend some days working out of my house and then he'd drive back up or whatever. But it was, I just remember early on thinking, okay, well, I'm a little too busy. I don't have enough time to get to all of it. And, and so that, that's how I landed on my first hire.
0: (laughs) Wow. And then what happened next? Like who, who came in next? And at what did you hire when you should have hired or when, if you were to go back and talk to your former self, would you have told yourself to hire earlier?
1: You know, that that's a good question. And at least what immediately comes to mind for me is all things in business. I actually think I would have been okay to always take a little bit more time, but that's usually not my nature as I kind of just usually just kind of go for it. And uh,
0: you're talking to somebody just like you then.
1: Yeah. Hey, let's, Hey, yeah, I realized that the bridge isn't there, but we can build it as we're crossing, um, you know, like that's a little bit more of my mentality. And, and so if I look back and if I were to do things slightly different, um, it would be more, being more selective about the clients that I worked with, uh, more so than uh, how soon I hired, because I think that that actually was a, a more uh, important aspect to, to cover.
0: Oh my gosh. I could give you a big hug for that. Because I said yes to everybody. Listeners, yep. this is your first episode. I have my interior architecture degree from one of the top art schools in the country. And I was designing high-end residential and really lush corporate offices. And then I moved to Ohio to design schools. And I was laid off in 2008 when the economy tanked. And... For some reason, despite my career background, I mean, I know it's entirely different, but when I started my virtual assistance company, and I no longer do virtual assistance, I just lacked the confidence. So I was charging $8 an hour. I'm nowhere near $8 an hour anymore. And (sighs) I was saying yes to everybody, just because I was in scarcity mode. I mean, I don't care where you live, at least if you're in the States, but $8 an hour when you started your own company especially when you have any type of experience and it doesn't need to be specifically in your niche, but people are not going to buy you if you're not confident in yourself and underpricing yourself is not going to instill confidence. So yeah, I was by the time I quit my job, I got hired as an administrative assistant at Honda because Dayton, Ohio is not the Mecca of interior design by any. (laughs) By the time I quit there, I had been contracted for 80 hours a week. And I was stretched stretched too thin in a different capacity because I had way too much work and I wasn't charging enough and it was it was hard to keep up.
1: Sounds like it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And then little or unbeknownst to my husband and I when I quit my job, I was also pregnant. So that threw another you know <laughs> Yeah, it's never a dull moment around here. No. But um as I've learned who my ideal client is and I've learned how to say no and also raise my rate Working in my business when I have to, because I do love getting my hands in and working on stuff, has become so yeah. much more pleasurable because I'm not working for all these clients who I'm not at all passionate about the product or services that they're producing. And when you are right. not, when you have clients in and you don't really give a CRAP about what they're selling, then how are you supposed to be there to support them in the best way that you can? Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, please don't. Take on clients who are not like, who don't touch your heart. And then also, if you're struggling financially, just double your rate. So where are you located now? And how long have you been in business? We didn't even discuss that. But you're on the Inc. 500, or you were on the Inc. 500 list last year. How many years did it take to get to this point?
1: Yeah, so we just celebrated our fifth anniversary. And uh, so we're about five years into this journey.
0: Wow. Inc. 500 less in five years and 120 plus employees. That's amazing. I mean, I'm sure the five years went by really fast and also pretty slow. Does that make sense? Or is that just me?
1: You're spot on there. Getting anything off the ground, it's it's the amount of energy expended, in the, especially in the first couple of years, was probably a decade's worth of energy.
0: I'm <laughs> um, into get, that, yeah
1: to get things going. And, but what is interesting is when you take uh, when I take the time to reflect, reflect and look back, it does feel like it went by super fast. And it's unbelievable to see where where we've landed. But sometimes in the day to day grind, it definitely can feel, um, you know, like I said, it just takes a lot of energy. And, you know, it's nice to, to be at a point where it's, you know, quite frankly, a lot of the energy expended didn't need to be either. The amount of hours that I was working. Uh, I don't know that it was even productive or helpful or good for the business or it certainly wasn't good for me. And so there's a lot of things where if I went back, you know, I probably wouldn't have put in a ton of 80 hour weeks, probably would have consistently done 60, you know, but between 60 and 80, I don't think I was actually doing anything good for myself or the company.
0: (laughs) Oh, I can't even tell you how many nights I found myself cross-eyed staring at my monitor and my head would keep on, you know jumping because i was falling asleep and it's at that point you realize oh my gosh it not the first time maybe not the first Mm -hmm. 10 times but after after i finally got it through my thick head you know you could go to sleep and wake up and do this tomorrow and have it done in about 10 minutes but you're just gonna fall asleep over and over again and it's gonna take you 14 hours if you keep up like this
1: well it was and and for me kim i don't know what it was like for you but i wore it as a badge of honor so did i and I'm like, I work so hard, and then and then it actually made me kind of—I uh, don't know that I was ever a crappy owner or, or, or boss or whatever, but certainly I started to kind of like project that expectation onto other people as well. And I, I have to imagine they didn't appreciate that, and that it wasn't the right thing to expect from them anyway, because what I was doing wasn't healthy for me and and for my well-being and for the business for that matter. And so. I look back and it's just kind of I just kind of chuckle at myself and I'm like, well, now I know now I get my sleep and I exercise and I come in refreshed and I get a lot more done and less time where before I would, you know, like I said, it was a badge of honor to wake up early and work all day and work late at night into the uh, early hours and, and feel like I was being super productive. And I look back and I just I just like I said, I just chuckle.
0: I'm over here laughing because it took six years. I just passed my six-year anniversary in my business. It took me six years to finally work exercise and nutrition into my schedule. I was so guilty of feeding my family out of boxes and not exercising. And I just got back from an event and I saw the, the picture that they gave me. Like They took a picture when I got there. I was like, oh no, this is it. Yeah, time to really because like, I've been talking about it listeners if you've been listening for a while you know I've been talking about getting healthier and and exercising and eating right Jacob today is day three and my legs are pounding but I'm already starting to feel better because I'm finally taking the time and I'm not sacrificing sleep for nutrition and fitness I was trying to figure out how I wake up at five o'clock to go to the gym but with my schedule, I often get a second wind at about 10 o'clock. So I don't often get into bed until midnight or one. So if I got up at five, that would be four hours of sleep. I can't do four hours of sleep. I like to get up about seven thirty or eight. Whenever my kids start screaming that they have to go pee, you know, I go and let them out. And <laughs> that makes me sound like I cage them. No, I do not cage my kids. Listeners, <laughs> but they are locked in the room because or else they make messes all over, but, um, yeah, I like my my seven or eight hours of sleep, and I understand what you were talking about with you working so much. My husband is also an entrepreneur; he's a video game developer, and I was getting a little bit resentful that I am working eighteen-hour days, if not more, and he was not. I was like, if I can do it, why can't you? And then I, this is a revelation. The last year, I realized that was so unfair because I shouldn't yep. have even been doing it. So it didn't just impact me inside the business and with the people I was networking with, but inside my family. And even my kids, you know, they want to play games and they want to relax and watch TV. But I was expecting them to constantly be going, you know, studying and doing chores and doing things that were more productive. But relaxation is productive. And we have to give ourselves permission to do that. Yep. What were couple of the big hurdles that you experienced in the first couple of years and how did you get over them besides pushing so hard?
1: Yeah, I think in terms of getting uh, th- kind of the business off the ground and, and working through some of those challenges, I think that the, the biggest one for a lot of organizations is to move past founder-based selling. It was, you know, came fairly natural to me and it was easy to sell people on getting signed up, but developing a team that could do that independent of me was probably the biggest thing that allowed us to start growing and scaling the organization. And, uh, same, same thing on the fulfillment side of our business, which is, you know, who can come up with the ideas, the strategy direction and execution without me as well. And so it's really finding that, that first tier, that first level of uh, leaders to, to put into the organization, because, the, the real process for most companies, almost almost regardless of the industry that you're in, is how far can I amplify my direct influence in the organization? Mm-hmm. And then there's that plateau, whether it's from a sales or uh, a fulfillment and an execute getting the work done side of things. But at some point there's a plateau, and the only way to break through that is to get people in that can start doing those things as well. And um, getting the sales team off the ground and, and hiring uh, some – you know, what I thought to be bigger guns out of the gate that I thought I could just completely hand it off to that didn't work out. Same thing on the fulfillment side. What I really found was just finding the right people uh, that shared my same values and drive and and then just taking the time to develop them. And even if it didn't happen overnight, uh, sell the first 10, 20, 30 accounts, give them, give them the commission, but just let them see how I did it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, on the fulfillment side to stop answering all the questions and to say, well, what do you think we should do here? And, and there really just wasn't a shortcut. It was like, Hey, let's just take the time to get a few people developed. And now those people have developed the next generation of, of leaders and managers in the company for me. And so I think that, uh, you know, really what I learned there was I, I at least I wasn't able to find the shortcut because I wasn't funded. I was bootstrapping mm-hmm. and, and so just kind of taking the time to develop, Uh, The people is really what kind of helped us push through those early, early times.
0: That is so important. And that's a lesson that I learned because I thought I had to hire the best of the best. And I would pay my team more than I would pay myself. Yeah. But my team now. Been there. (laughs) Yeah. My team now was all green. And I mean, like new to the industry when I hired them. And they've learned how to do things the way that I like them done or they've created their own ways, which I love because I love team feedback, you know, maybe it would work better this way, but they've come up with those systems and strategies themselves, and not because they've been in the industry for this long. And it's something that I wouldn't have seen because I'm so close and I do things my own way, far too often when maybe if I just stepped back, then I would see that there's alternatives. But so often as entrepreneurs, we just don't step back, because we're hustling and grinding. I have learned to dislike those two words. In the last six years, hustle and grind, because I don't want to hustle and grind in my business. But Jacob, you have just inspired me because sales is that one thing that I haven't let go of yet. Implementation, no problem. That's how you know I still implement, but I've got six other people now that will help me implement. But the sales part, I haven't let go of that. So after I get this fitness and nutrition thing down, I think that's the next area of focus. Yeah. Wow. What does disruptive advertising mean to you?
1: Disruptive advertising, to me, means when when done correctly, a company can spend less and outperform their competition from a marketing standpoint. When advertising is done correctly, it's the best moat you can build around your business because uh, other companies are going to say, "Man, how come they can do this and when I spend money on it, I'm not getting the results I'm looking for?" Getting those things dialed in and figuring them out, it really is the differentiator and, and allows the business to succeed and grow and and so when I think of disruptive, it's, yeah, let's just outsmart the competition, not outspend them. And that gives us the opportunity to invest more in marketing and start to pick up more market share and speed things up. But, but that's what I get passionate about and, and letting that be numbers driven so that it's not based on emotion. It's based on the numbers. Well,
0: wow. I like that. What did you say about the competition again? It's not about outspending. It's about outsmarting. Yep. Oh, love that. How do you believe you have outsmarted your competition? Hmm.
1: Well, we definitely are uh, an anomaly in terms of growth in our peer set. And I think that there's a couple of things. Uh, number one, um, I don't have a lot of partners in the organization that I have to appease. And so I can invest a lot of the net income of the business into growth. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's a strategic advantage that we have. And, uh, and then, at the end of the day, we I think a lot of it is uh, our ability to recruit, uh, hire, develop, and and build an organization at a rate that other people haven't been able to, and feed them with the marketing engine that what we do for our clients is what we do for ourselves. And that's how we get all of our leads and grow as an organization. And we're kind of like, hey, we eat our own dog food, and it actually tastes fantastic. And where where most of our competition, They've they've never actually had to do these things for themselves before. And I think that that's where the disconnect is. Hmm.
0: If there was one question that you had to ask every applicant and there was a right and wrong answer, what would that question be and what would the right and wrong answer be?
1: So the question that I find to be the most insightful is what was your first job and why?
0: Hmm.
1: And to me, the answer can be a variety of things. But what I'm looking for is... Have you had a job that sucked that you were able to like push through before and and find a way to be successful, even though it was hard and you didn't like it? And and that, to me, has been a great indicator of probably my best predictor of success in the interviewing process. And when people are like, oh, this is my first one, or I've never really had to create for myself financially before, I didn't have to do that until much later in life, um, It's a, it doesn't mean that they won't be successful, but the rate at which they are successful, the the percentage is down because they hit those hard times and they haven't developed the fortitude to push through them.
0: Yeah. What was your first job and what was your least favorite job?
1: <laughs> I, my first job uh, was a paper out when I was eight years old.
0: Me too. But at 11.
1: Yeah. I have never had a job I didn't like. Now, Granted, I've, I've moved around because I, you know, I think you always look for something that's better and that, and that creates the growth opportunity. But I'll tell you what, I was, uh, I worked with a, with a brick mason, brick masonry company for a long time. And uh, that was the, the hardest physical labor of my, and, and this is, you know, I grew up playing sports, football, lifting, exercising, doing all those things. And, and I remember the first day after being on the job of, of doing that construction and, and being what's called a hod tender Um, building scaffolding, mixing the mortar, moving the blocks and bricks around and all that stuff. I couldn't move my fingers the next morning. Wow. Um, And I woke up and I had to use my forearm to start moving my fingers back and forth because my arms and my body were just so sore. And that was the physically hardest job I've ever had. But I actually loved it. I loved the people I worked with. And it gave me some perspective on, you know, probably wasn't what I wanted to do long term in my life and gave me some perspective on those things. But, man, I sure learned a lot and I loved it.
0: My hardest job was Chipotle. Hmm. Before I started working at American Honda, after I I lost my interior design job, you know, you do what you got to do so you can do what you want to do. And I got a job at Chipotle. Yep. I was kicked off the line because my burritos wouldn't stay together. <laughs> <laughs> but, and. As so Kim, I'm never
1: going to have you make me a burrito then.
0: Oh No, I've mastered it at home now because <laughs> I love the food. I still eat there okay. to this day. But as employees, you get a free meal every shift. So I was worried that I would get fat. No, I lost 50 pounds working there because you do not stop. And one of the biggest lessons wow. I learned there, and I, I worked there eight years ago, there are still people... That I worked with at that time who are now managers there and we still connect. I mean, the environment was really awesome. awesome. This is not supposed to be a Chipotle commercial, but it was just great. But table touches, that is something that I've brought into my business now. Because we, as the cashier, I had to go whenever I could and just go to each table and see how everything was. And as entrepreneurs, we often forget to do table touches with our client roster. Hmm. How are you doing today? You know, is there anything I can help you with? How about signing them up for an expanded package that they didn't even know they needed? But if you just get into a conversation after they've already started, then you can open up new opportunities. And I've forgotten about that so many times.
1: That's a great point.
0: Jacob, what are you most excited about in the next 90 days?
1: In the next 90 days, we um, we are moving to a new home that we're very excited about.
0: Corporate home uh, or residential home?
1: Residential, and I am going to uh, Machu Picchu improve my wife, so that will be awesome.
0: Wow! Because I'm curious, I have taken very little vacation in the life of my business. Is that something that you purposely plan into your business now?
1: I'm definitely better at taking time off. I actually enjoy working, and so even when we go on vacations, I tend to like to work two or three hours in the morning or in the evenings. I'm going to try to disconnect on this one, but I definitely make more time for personal trips for myself. I love fishing, and so I, I try to make sure I plan a couple of fun fishing trips every year and then going on some with my wife and making sure that she can plan some personal ones to go on her own, but uh, definitely have prioritized that more now than I than I did earlier on in the business.
0: What are some of the common mistakes you see in Facebook ads?
1: Well, most people advertise on Facebook under the assumption that people are on Facebook to buy what they have to sell mm-hmm. and and that's just that's just wrong.
0: yeah,
1: people are not on Facebook to buy what you have. Uh, they're on there to see something funny, to interact with friends, to stay up to speed with with relationships. And so I think that's the first thing that people get wrong is that no one's going on there to buy anything from you. and so why don't we why don't we remove that uh, first? What we tend to see be the most successful is depending on what you're selling, some products are actually perfectly geared towards the impulse buyer on social media. Let's just be real. I'm looking at my, on my table in my office right now with some really expensive set of tops that I bought from an ad on Instagram that I did not go there to buy, but I thought that's cool. I want it. Mm -hmm. So that does work. You can get direct sales on that, but what's actually the most successful is retargeting people that already came to your website and expressed interest and then retargeting and advertising to them on Facebook is a great way to stay top of mind during the buying process. And that's typically where I recommend people start on Facebook because that's where you'll get the best ROI. Yeah. And now in terms of conquest, where I'm actually pushing a message to people that have not been to my site or interacted with me before is I always recommend start with value. What can you give them that gives value? And, and a lot of the times with no strings attached. So that might even be a few really extremely well-written blog posts around topics that are very important in your industry and just driving people to it and creating that type of, hey, I'm going to give you value first. And now after a couple of those, I might start to push in and this is you know the offer or um, whatever that might be. And so I think a lot of the times it's just make sure that you're approaching it from a value standpoint first rather than, hey, I'm just going to go spend a bunch of money on Facebook and make a big return. That's not typically how it works. Now, it actually does for some businesses, but not for most.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's exactly the journey that I've been on. I would come up with products in scarcity mode and put out a Facebook ad, spend several hundred dollars and get exactly zero sales. But since I turned that around and I'm offering value first and then connecting and then possibly... Selling, if my own funnel is set up, you know, the cobbler's kid shoes are all always broken. And then the sales come, but not yeah. the other way around. You can't just show up from your dark corner and then expect to sell something. But as you said, sometimes it works, but most often it doesn't. Yeah. Yep. Who is your ideal client now?
1: So we do work across, I mean, we work with, actively we work with about 500 customers right now and we are across most industries. Uh, companies come to us because they're, they're kind of at a, at, a, at a stage where they're ready to grow. They're past viability, they've got a good product or service, things are working, and they're somewhere in that neighborhood, and they just need help with that from a digital marketing standpoint. Uh, people come to us to get help advertising on Google and Facebook, simplistically. Uh, what they don't realize that they need is good analytics and data, um, so that we've got a full visibility on what's actually working. Um, and then actually perfecting the website experience and testing different versions of it. And so that's what we're looking for is uh, the the types of customers that are in those types of circumstances. Uh, we can help drive the right traffic from those platforms and make sure it converts and demonstrate the ROI. Uh, the ones that don't work for us is that the viability is not there. It's if these dollars don't produce, um, we're in a, we're in a really hard spot. And so we've got a month or two to figure this out. We just don't engage in those situations anymore because it's usually a zero-sum game. And
0: uh, and high stress.
1: And, high sh- and it's just not a win for anybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I found that myself. Working with clients who are in scarcity mode is yep. just so incredibly stressful. Those are the ones who are texting at 2 o'clock in the morning. Because just like I already shared with you, I mean, they come up with the ideas because they're in scarcity mode and they put them out. But then they get upset when it doesn't convert. But they haven't done the time. How long would you suggest to any of the listeners that they give a marketing campaign to actually see if it's working or not? Well, and I know this can change by person and industry.
1: So that there's a lot of factors that play into that. Every marketing campaign should drive the results that you're looking for. Because even if it doesn't drive the ROI, it taught you something about your audience that allows you to be more effective with your next marketing campaign. And so I think that the mentality is exactly what you described. When can I expect the ROI? Sometimes that could take 18 months to really get a marketing campaign dialed in or even longer. What we typically see is that viability, hey, do we have anything here? Is there at least enough potential from what we're seeing so far? It's usually three months is a good viability phase. Hey, are we going to be able to make these channels work for us? By six months, we're typically sustainably uh, advertising and it's it's hitting the returns that are... Uh, it at least makes sense and then typically within a year is is what we expect to start to see real tangible top line and bottom line growth because now that we've iterated through 10 20 100 marketing tasks we've started to find what's working um and that's typically the timeline that we see
0: awesome listeners if you have a marketing campaign and you're still at the point when you have to do it yourself when you're testing, I just want to point out that you should only be testing one or two elements at a time. Jacob, you might have different thoughts, but please do not go and change every single component of a landing page because then you won't know what made the difference.
1: Yeah. And and to that point, typically what you want, we typically start with a completely different design and that's an A-B test, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, which page performed better? Yeah. And now we know which one performed better. We need to understand why it performed better. Right. And so then the next series of tests is, hey, let's remove this piece or add this piece. And now that we understand that this was the higher performing page, we now understand why it was the higher performing page. And so it's it's a sequence of events that you have to go through.
0: I know I mentioned earlier that my current team was all green when I hired them. Listeners, for your marketing, for specialized services like Google AdWords and Facebook ads, this is something that I do not recommend hiring somebody who's entirely green for. So if you're interested, please get in touch with Jacob. But Jacob, for people who just aren't in the financial position, because I never want people to go bankrupt, you know, potentially put themselves in that deep financial hole, what are two tips that you could give to our listeners on how they could instantly Well, not instantly, just give themselves an immediate leg up and then they could come to you after those little things start working. Does that make sense?
1: So everything that we do, we publish in detail and with full transparency on our blog. Awesome. And we get over 100,000 visitors a month to our blog consuming this and understanding what's working and what's not. Um, And so I would recommend, you know, subscribe to the blog, go check it out. It's on disruptiveadvertising.com. And uh, that's a great place to start. Um, and for people that are in a situation where no, it's working, we want to offload some of this or get someone that knows what they're doing. Then reach out to us on, on the same site, and we'd be we'd love to take a look at that with you.
0: Fantastic! And again, that's disruptiveadvertising.com. And if you're driving, working out, or just not able to write it down right now, you can go to thekimsutton.com forward slash pp490 to get all the links and resources that we've mentioned during today's episode. Jacob, I have one last question before we wrap up. You bet. Do you still start across the bridge even before it's completed being built? And would you recommend that to our listeners?
1: (laughs) I definitely still do that. And that's a little bit more my nature. And I don't know that it's everyone's going to have their own approach. And I think that it's okay to just accept that and the pros and cons that come with that to some degree. And I've hired other people that are good about having a plan for it and making sure that it happens. And and then I can kind of get it started and move it in that direction. But that's why I have specifically hired uh, around myself with my leadership team to kind of balance those things out.
0: Considering I'm in the same boat, I guess the boat would be going under the bridge. I'm on the same train, (laughs) <laughs> I love that because that's exactly what my, my team is doing for me. They remind me when I already have too many things and they're helping me complete the thing. So when I get to that point in the bridge, at least the next section is built and I can keep on walking. Yeah. Jacob, this has been absolutely amazing. I know you already shared disruptiveadvertising.com, but where else can we find you and connect online?
1: I am the most active on LinkedIn. And so I'd love to connect with you on there. It's Jacob Badsgard. And, uh, you know, or at Jake Badsgard on Twitter as well.
0: Fabulous. And again, listeners, all the links will be in the show notes at com forward slash pp490. Jacob, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me, Ken.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can give to the listeners?
1: You know, what I have found is that it it just matters so much less than I thought when I get to where I think I want to be and that it matters a lot more how I get there. And, And when I allow myself to get there in the right way, I start to care a lot less about how fast it happens or how slow it's happening and I can enjoy the journey a little bit more. And so if you can just ask yourself that question from time to time, and I continue to need to do so myself, is it's not about when, it's about how we get there, then I think we can all enjoy the journey a lot more.